This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. So we'll start with the SAG nominations because as we record this, they have just come out. Um, kind of a, the first big rush of thrilling names for me to type into our CMS and, you know, try to process everything that's going on as we look at it. Um, and I do think there were a solid number of big surprises, um, which is funny to say because it's early in the season and technically everything is a surprise. But uh, I certainly wasn't expecting to be cheering for Bradley Cooper uh, with, you know, uh, axes or ba- baseball bats in my hand or whatever, <laughs> whatever he has in that last <laughs> scene in Licorice Pizza. Um, so that I would start with that as my personal most delightful surprise uh, of the nominations. Uh, but maybe uh, let's go around. Richard, what uh, what delighted and surprised you in these nominations. I'm really glad they recognize Ben Affleck for what I think is a good performance in The Tender Bar. Um, I, I would have nominated him for The Last Duel instead of The Tender Bar. Um, but I think he's good. And I know that his personal life has been rocky and he's said some things that people have been upset about. But like distilled down to the work, he was a great performer uh, in 2021. And also, I think hopefully this is a little like concessionary nod to um, The Way Back, which premiered like or came out like a week before COVID shutdowns in 2020. Yeah. So and he, so that movie just kind of disappeared into the ether, which was a shame because it was a very personal story and uh, in, in some ways. So, yeah, um, I think it's nice that, you know, the actors are recognizing their fellow actor. It was kind of feeling like the tender bar was also disappearing into the ether. Like it's on Amazon. It's available for everyone to watch. Every time I turn on my Apple TV, it tells me to watch it. But it's had really mysterious buzz up to this point. Um, But yesterday or a couple days ago, he was on the cover of Entertainment Weekly for their awards issue. So I guess that was a sign that it had more buzz than we thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a solid movie. It's not it's it's, you know, it's a memoir adaptation and kind of has this traditional kind of frustrating structure of that where it's just very episodic and. We don't really feel an arc, uh, you know, over the course of the film. But um, the acting is great. And Affleck is definitely the standout there. Uh, David, what delighted you from these nominations? I'll go to supporting actress Ruth Nega making it through for passing. Uh, was a really nice surprise. SAG can lean toward the more broadly accessible, let's say. And I think <laughs> we'll get there, I guess. And, and I think, you know, Ruth Nega, to me, that's an undeniable performance in passing. But it's one that had been... A little frustratingly outside of the conversation, and she's really had a great couple weeks. She won National Society of Film Critics, um, Best Supporting Actress Prize, and she made this field among many other much bigger contenders, most of whom are in strong Best Picture candidates, um, which I think bodes really, really well for her Oscar chances. So I was thrilled to see that. Yeah, and you think about how her nomination for Loving, um, I don't know what the exact trajectory is. You might remember it better than me, David, but like no one knew she had the buzz and all of a sudden she popped up there at the Oscars. And um, that seems very possible for passing again. Yeah, she's pulling it again. All right. How about you, Rebecca? What what thrilled you? 
Um, I was really excited to see Coda on the ensemble list. I think um, that film has basically been on the uh, awards path for a year now because it came out at Sundance. And, you know, for a while I felt like it was kind of getting lost. And now it's really been picking up quite a few um, nominations and and other sort of critics uh, prizes. So to see it, you know, be appreciated by the actors as well, I thought was really exciting. Yeah, my big swing in our nominations was predicting Amelia Jones in the actress category, which didn't happen. Um, Troy Kotzer did get in as supporting actor. But I think it was a similar idea of, like, actors should... I mean, everyone, I think, loves this movie when they do see it. And you can imagine actors really responding to it. And it's it's an ensemble that works in unison together, um, maybe unlike some of the other ensembles that got nominated today. Yeah. Okay, what are we mad about or shocked by? You can pick either one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, um, I think I know what the biggest snub is. Who wants to say it? Uh, well, yeah, they've, <laughs> they've deposed Princess Diana. Well, I don't know what the term, what the royal term would be. but um, <laughs> Beheaded, I think, is beheaded what Princess is. Diana. Uh, <laughs> Kristen Stewart did not get in, whereas Jessica Chastain did. And, and I Jennifer have, Hudson. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I very cynically wonder with the Chastain of it all, if maybe publicly going to bat for a fellow actor after a nasty scurrilous New Yorker profile uh, <laughs> somehow raises your estimation in other actors' eyes, I, I don't know. But Chastain Jeremy was definitely Strong out. did get nominated. Yeah, yeah. Chastain was definitely out there, like defending her fellow actors uh, in the last couple of weeks. So maybe that had some effect, or maybe they just liked the performance in Eyes of Tammy Faye, which they would not be wrong about. I think she's good in that movie. Um, it's just surprising that she's there and Kristen Stewart, who since Labor Day, or since pre-Labor Day at the Venice Film Festival, um, has been viewed as something of a front runner for Spencer. Mm. Yeah, what do we what do we think is the reason for it? I don't know what else she could have done, to be honest, because she's been doing so much press and and really putting herself out there. So it 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 to me it feels like a you know a problem with the film just not. Uh, you know, it was very polarizing and we knew that it was going to be that way, but it did seem like people agreed her performance was uh, worthy of, of attention. Um, but I think maybe it's just because the film is not being, um, you know, welcomed or appreciated. Yeah, I flashed back to early December, early September coming out of the Telluride premiere and a high level publicist saying to me, well, I hated that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the movie also really underperformed on the BAFTA long list today, which we can talk a little bit more about, which tend to be pretty predictive of the sort of, you know, overall state of the race. And, and I do worry for her. I think that the movie just did not click with the industry at all. And she may still overcome that, but I I don't think this is a case of like, oh, well, she missed here, but, you know, she's she's fine to to get into the Oscars. I I would still bet on that, but um, I do think she's in some trouble. Yeah, and I think we've all um, kind of had a hunch that as a front runner, like her her status has diminished a little bit, and Nicole yeah. Kidman was maybe surging. And um, Nicole Kidman, I mean, I don't think anyone thought she wouldn't get nominated by SAGs, but that did feel like a very symbolic way to say, like, oh, well, okay, that she might she, Kidman is probably your new front runner if you had to pick one. I don't know who's winning that category. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that Chastain. I mean, it, she has popped up everywhere uh, she got the globe nomination the critics choice nomination she made the BAFTA list today it feels like the kind of big performance that will will score some votes um mm-hmm. but i honestly yeah i mean i feel like you'd have to default at this point to to kidman um or honestly olivia coleman is not one to count out that's another you know if you look at the lost daughter and spencer side by side i think they're two movies that are going to alienate a good portion of their audience and so to yeah. me it's, it's interesting that coleman was able to break through even though that movie is smaller had less time it came out later um and she still made it through so um i'm looking at her too i, I have no idea <laughs> i olivia coleman winning and then thanking lady gaga again at the end of her speech <laughs> we phenomenal. can only dream um well speaking of lady gaga should we talk about house of gucci um You know, her and Jared Leto getting nominated isn't a huge shock, but the ensemble nomination on top of that, uh, David, you pointed out that it tied The Power of the Dog, which didn't get an ensemble nomination, (laughs) but got uh, three individual ones. Um, Hasaguchi and Power of the Dog would not have been the pair of frontrunners at SAGs, I would have expected. I guess I'll say that. (laughs) What what do we make of this? Hasaguchi made money. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know. Does that help? Uh, It can't hurt. It has a lot of big famous people in it. 
uh, who are doing a lot of acting, whether or not that is to the liking of everyone, uh, has certainly been up for debate since the movie came out. But I don't know. If I were someone in SAG, I might say, hey, like, here's a way to support a studio. Uh, you know, it's it's MGM, so it's kind of half a studio at this point. But like, you know, some sort of studio adjacent thing, putting a mid-budget movie with lots of stars that isn't about, you know, superheroes. Like, I, I maybe I would feel encouraging of that, um, especially my fellow actors who really put themselves on the line by doing um, wild um, Italian-ish accents. <laughs> and I do I do think it is an ensemble film like they may all be acting in different movies, but they're acting opposite <laughs> each other. So, um, you know, it does it does sort of have that fun ensemble feel to it. So I could see people, you know, giving it attention for that. But yeah. And it, I don't know. It, yeah, it, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> this they always nominate at least one movie that is not much of a best picture, even nomination contender. Um, sure. And I had my eyes on the heart of they fall as the one that would be that hmm. uh, just given again, really big fun ensemble cast on Netflix and which, you know, more eyeballs always helps, but house of Gucci got a lot of eyeballs. So I don't, I don't think it's too shocking. Um, in retrospect, because it, it does fit what they like to do and what they tend to gravitate toward. Um, but yeah, I, I think the bigger surprise is that they spread the wealth so much where most of the ensemble nominees, like it was, you did not get a second <laughs> individual acting nomination mm-hmm. if you got into the ensemble category. Like Anjanu Ellis was not nominated for King Richard mm-hmm. and Marley Matlin was not nominated for Coda and um, the Belfast guys were not nominated while Katrina Belf was and on and on. Um, but Gucci transcended that, uh, that trend. <laughs> it was the one film that bucked that trend. So I don't know what to make of that, but you know, in isolation it doing well at SAG, I don't think is a huge surprise or necessarily means uh, much for its Oscar chances beyond the fact that, you know, Lady Gaga is a strong best actress contender and, and Jared Leto is on that supporting actor bubble. Yeah. What do we make of uh, Don't Look Up being uh, an uh, ensemble nomination with no individual nominees? Yeah. Not surprising, I suppose. Yeah. And I think we had spoken about it last week as a potential winner because, again, it's very star-studded. It's easily watched. It's kind of almost designed to be watched at home um, versus, you know, some movies that may have suffered. Um, I think Spencer, for example, that's probably not good on a screener. Um mm-hmm. You know, so I, Don't Look Up is I, I thought that maybe we'd see some individual breakout nominees from Don't Look Up. But um, I guess like you were saying, David, that 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 oftentimes it, if they get the ensemble, they don't get other things. I had uh, picked Leo to possibly get a an individual individual nom on our mm-hmm. sort of SAG predictions list. And I went back and forth on it and I was incorrect. But um, I do agree. It's, it's just one of those like big, beautiful ensembles and. And um, shout out to Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi for getting their <laughs> individual set. I mean, their SAG noms as part of the ensembles because that's that that has the biggest uh, list of of names that actually get to be a part of the ensemble nom. I'm just rela- relieved Timothy Chalamet did not go 0 for three. That would have been pretty brutal. But, you know, oh, one oh, of for, his one yeah. of his casts got in Dune. And, uh, <laughs> Dune and the French Dispatch did not. But you know, hey, he's he's got plenty to be proud he's of. He's got I plenty mean. to be proud. Of. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was really surprised Leo didn't make it. in actually, I mean, you have to figure Javier Bardem took his spot, and they didn't nominate Ricardo's for ensemble. Yeah, it's it's a weird one to me. Yeah, Javier Bardem uh, was a surprise for me, too. And it did seem like if he was going to get in there that uh, it would have gotten in for ensemble. But I think right. you were pointing out that the ensemble options for Ricardo is like just four people, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of a shame <laughs> for that movie. That's true. Well, so also in Don't Look Up, but not nominated for it, uh, Kate Blanchett getting it for Nightmare Alley surprised me. Um, we've been gone back and forth on that movie as a maybe best picture contender because it's got all these like really beautiful crafts in it. But the acting uh, part of the equation has always feel, felt a little funny. I don't know that I would still count on her for an Oscar nomination, but it's it's a sign that somebody's really um, got some affection for that movie, right? I wonder if she has a similar, is in a similar situation to Ben Affleck on the, on the BAFTA lists, Blanchett was mentioned for don't look up, but not for nightmare alley. Hmm. But I, I think there may be a growing consensus that she's had an interesting year with two very, <laughs> very big, um, different performances, uh, in those two movies. 
I don't know if this means that the Nightmare Alley lane is the way to go, because that movie otherwise seemed to really be fading. Like, it was snubbed by the Makeup and Hairstyling Guild. Um, it didn't make some key Oscar shortlists. So I was kind of counting her out entirely for that yeah. movie. But again, SAG just <laughs> SAG went their own way in, in pretty much every way. I think the thing to keep in mind uh, for people listening who have don't remember is that every time Emily Blunt turns to her mantle and sees her SAG award, she remembers that Regina King was not nominated that year and then went on to win the Oscar. <laughs> so the SAG sometimes does weird things that are not predictive of the Oscars. And I feel like Blanchett might be in that sort of Emily Blunt zone um, in a way where, like, I don't know that this will repeat at the Oscars, but it could. Um, whereas Ruth Nega, who you know, was kind of like, will she get in? It's one of those weird things where it's like, if she gets in, I feel like she could win. You know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It, 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 you know, people have clearly watched that movie, and um, she's wonderful in it. Um, so I, I, you know, we'll, we'll see. But I, I think it's it's just, it's a really exciting thing for Nega because I, I, that means she has momentum. Whereas weirdly, I don't feel like this means that Blanchett has momentum. Totally. I don't know how I'm squaring that in my head, but no, I completely yeah. agree with that. Well, I'm also looking at Ariana DeBose on that list, and she's the only nominee for West Side Story, which I guess isn't a huge shock, although it felt like it would have been a good ensemble contender to me. But uh, she won the Golden Globe, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, and I would hope that she would win here. Like, I think if she wins SAG, then like that is a pretty concrete narrative. Like We've been pretty high on her as a potential winner here. But the weirdness of this list of nominees makes me just truly wonder what might happen. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Let's jump over to the TV side of SAG for a second, since that is also really fascinating. Um, and it's a, always a weird combination of Emmy winners from last year and then new shows. Um, as we predicted, Squid Game made a big leap, not just in the ensemble category, but for individual acting nominations. Um, anything else stand out to you guys about the TV SAG nominations? Murray Bartlett. I think that's great. I think yeah, that's last really week's fun. guest on this very podcast. We did yeah. it. We got him over he, the got him to that nomination. <laughs> he's this journeyman Australian actor who's been at it for a long time. He was on Looking. He was on an episode of Sex in the City. He's just been sort of around um, for the better part of I think twenty years, probably longer. Um, and so it's really nice that in a, in a in a show, The White Lotus, with tons of great performances, that his was singled out um, as was Jennifer Coolidge's. I think quite justly. Yeah. Yeah. Also highlighting the madness of not having an ensemble limited series category. It's so crazy. Like, what? Like, what is there to lose by just adding another category for the the types of shows most people watch these days? Anyway, truly. Also, combining supporting and lead for television but not film is just so confusing to me. I just I don't understand why not have supporting actor <laughs> categories in, <laughs> for television, especially when you're looking at something like Succession, you know, which just has so many incredible performances and you can't throw them all into the actor category. So, yeah, strange. I think my biggest surprise was Morning Show did really re- well and and I had sort of dismissed it because of the reactions to the second season. But yeah. Uh, How about Yellowstone getting in on the uh, drama thing? I mean, it's the most watched show on television, so I shouldn't be shocked that it's in there. But it's really never gotten any awards attention that I can think of. So is this the beginning of the Yellowstone uh, year? Maybe. Um, (laughs) Who knows? I I feel like the narrative has also developed that the drama categories are just a little bit thinner these days because so much of that kind of television is now happening in the limited space. So Mm. it it feels like it has a clear lane to break out there. I noticed when she was announcing the nominations that that was like the one show Rosario Dawson really (laughs) highlighted as uh, one that she liked. And it feels like this is the year it's picked up a lot of steam in the industry. I mean, I have a lot of family members who do not live in Los Angeles who watch the show. Yeah. And and I think it's kind of started to 
to drift to the coast a little bit more. (laughs) I have not personally seen it, but it does feel like it's having a moment. So I would expect that to continue. Side note, though, that Rosario Dawson and Vanessa Hudgens were really good on that. Um, really Instagram good. Live is a terrible format for doing these nominations because <laughs> every it's not done twice, and every year there's some technical difficulty. But um, once they got started, they did a great job. So kudos, kudos to them. I love okay. that Vanessa Hudgens is having like a good, great good year. Little late 2021, early 2022. Yeah, uh, I am her. very excited to see what happens to her at this point. Like, I think Tick, Tick, Boom is this really nice platform for her and her talents. And I don't know what the ideal next role is for her, but I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, and Tick, Tick, Boom, like, kind of, you know, frames her as this, like, reliable company player, you know? Which yeah. Is, which is nice. I think that she's earned that. Yeah, and as Rebecca and I have talked about, her hair in that movie is just her hair. Incredible. It's phenomenal. Like, whatever yeah. she can do with that hair, <laughs> I'm going to want to see it. Where we is the hair and makeup award for her hair? <laughs> <laughs> we, we were watching that at home over the holidays, and my sister, when she walks in with the hair and the boots and the, the slouchy sweater and everything, my sister was like, well, that's an outfit, like, like very, like, admir- admiringly. <laughs> oh, <know>? yeah. <laughs> she, she does look great in it. Well, let's talk about the Golden Globes. Um, David, you wrote about them for us on Monday. Not so much going over the winners, but uh, what you called the brazen chaos of (laughs) of these Golden Globes, which really um, lived up to, I think, our wildest predictions of what a Twitter-only Golden Globes could be. Um, Do you want to just sum up why they felt so crazy for a series of tweets, uh, why they captured so much chaos? I think that there there was a some hope dicting about, or or what I I, um, perceived as that, about how strange and out of touch and (laughs) I don't even know how to describe it, Uh, these tweets could get. But the Golden Globes had decided to restrict their winter announcements publicly to Twitter while they did a private ceremony at the Beverly Hilton that wasn't live streamed. And um, immediately (laughs) the, the decision of how to announce the winners on Twitter proved absolutely bananas and <laughs> and confounding they it, it felt like they had someone whether it was an intern or i pray to god but not someone who who should who was higher up who should have known a lot better but people who didn't really know who the winners were as they were announcing them and so it led to these really awkwardly written tweets that sometimes didn't feel like they were written in proper english and at other times were were bizarrely fixated on category as opposed to like not even naming the project that was one for and it was nice because <laughs> we've had all these cancellations as we've talked about and i think there's been a solemn cloud over uh, january award season with all of us back at home back to watching these things on our laptops and there was a real collective glee over what the next tweet would be um <laughs> And how it would be phrased. Like, I wanted to know who would win. It's the Golden Globes. It doesn't count for nothing. But I more importantly wanted to know how they would win. I wanted to know how, uh, after Ariana DeBose won for West Side Story, which began in the announcement with the lyrics to Lean On Me. Yep. For, I mean, it required a lot of digging to understand that I think they were trying to reference it being a supporting performance. But there was a lot of confusion over that. And after that, there was a real nail bitey aspect to how the next category would go. Do you, this, is a, this is maybe a long runway to take you guys down. But do you remember the movie Orphan, where Vera Farmiga <laughs> adopts a child? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then it turns out to be an, a grown-up Estonian person who's pretending to be a child. I feel like the Golden Globes hired like a young, hip social media manager. And then throughout the night, they were like, wait, this is a 70-year-old from Lithuania who's just pretending. Like, the Lean on Me thing was was funny, as was the, you know, laughter is the best med- medicine. Congratulations yeah. to West Side Story. <laughs> yeah, what was going on there? But it was it was a nice simulation of the usual chaos of the Globes. Um, yes. Albeit absolutely. in a weirder internet, in, internet-y way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was like watching the like the annual speech from the HFPA president where you're just like, who is has this person ever been in front of a camera in their life? And it was but, but the Twitter version of it. Yeah. Uh, do we make anything of the winners? I think we kind of couldn't help ourselves being like, oh, wow, Ariana DeBose, she's got some momentum now, even though, as we all know, the Globes are, are kind of silly and meaningless without an award show. Or are they? Do we feel, I don't know, do we feel like these had an, an impact in terms of who actually won? I think... We don't know, but I do think there's probably a little bit of a boost because the season is starved for any sort of um, event at this point because everything's been postponed or canceled. And so 
And I do think most of their choices were pretty reasonable and mm-hmm. could be potential Oscar winners for a lot of them. You know, they picked Power of the Dog and West Side Story and Drive My Car for Foreign Language. So I think it does make a little bit of an impact. What I what I did think about a lot that day was the speeches were missing out on because that's really what used to give people you know especially acting nominees a boost was if they gave a killer speech during the globes it helped um them for their you know oscar chances so seeing a speech by ariana debose or or some of these winners would have been i think the bigger boost and that's what really got lost yeah i agree i mean then the fact is they got three of last year's four Oscar acting winners wrong last, you know, they, they got Daniel Kaluuya, right. But they miss supporting actress and both lead actors. So chances are they do better. Uh, I think you could put good money on still Will Smith and Ariana DeBose. Nicole Kidman. And Mm. yeah, Nicole Kidman was, is now sort of in that zone. Um, And even Cody Smith McPhee for supporting actor, especially after this morning's very chaotic nominations, for the SAG Awards, you you have to think he's a really strong contender there. So um, I think they did they did fine in sort of rubber stamping who has a good chance at winning an Oscar. I don't know that they have any impact without, uh, as Rebecca was saying, speeches or much promotion. Uh, Nicole yeah. Kidman did quickly uh, thank the HFPA, which I thought was interesting, uh, unlike most of the winners. Um, mm-hmm. The West Side Story folks, kind of in line with how Disney's been promoting the Globes um, this whole season, uh, did did acknowledge their wins, but, uh, cause Rachel Zegler also won. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure that it's an impact question so much as a, yeah, these are, these are very plausible winners across the board. Yeah. Re- Rebecca, you mentioned, uh, drive my car, uh, which, you know, also won like four awards mm-hmm. at the national society of film critics, which I was uh, voting on, uh, on last Saturday. Um, and that coupled with its win at the golden globes, I feel like, that's something to hang on, you know, the, like that movie has momentum and people are now sort of saying, could it get a Best Picture nomination? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it keeps winning. It's It won the top, you know, it won Best Picture at three of the top critics groups, L.A., New York and National. Um, and I don't know, I, ho- I hope that would be a really interesting narrative to see emerge that this three hour Japanese film about Chekhov um, is in that conversation. But we don't have much other conversation to cling to. So yeah. uh, maybe the Globes are helping, you know, guide that and some way. Well, anecdotally, I was doing a interview with Peter Dinklage yesterday, and he was going on and on about how Drive My Car was his favorite film of like the past five years. So I do think oh, wow. if we were in those rooms with people, it would be the film that a lot of people are, are just adoring. Man, speaking about films that speak directly to actors, like what could mm. appeal more to an actor, especially <laughs> someone who's done theater than Drive My Car? Yeah. Um, Also, credit where it's due to the Golden Globes, we've talked about this before, where sometimes they just get things remarkably right. They're kind of the only major award won by the Underground Railroad, uh, which got weirdly snubbed by the Emmys last year. So seeing that win made me like, okay, well, we're grateful that that they're there for better or for worse. They, They picked a really good winner there. Yeah, yeah, and MJ Rodriguez. I just wish that like she had gotten had, give a speech and have a, her TV moment. And mm-hmm. you know, context of the Globes aside, like I did find myself looking at the winners on Sunday, well, or trying to kind of hieroglyphically interpret from what the tweets were telling me, like who won. <laughs> um, I found myself wishing that they had all kind of had their show. You know, um, yeah. that would have been nice. Uh, David, you mentioned the BAFTA long list earlier, which got announced the same morning as the SAG Awards. Um, it is a long list, so it's a uh, long list of titles, <laughs> not all of which will get BAFTA nominations. Um, but as I think you pointed out, uh, the BAFTAs do tend to be very predictive of the Oscars. So uh, what stood out to you from these? Yeah, so last year, every actor who was nominated for an Oscar made the BAFTA long list except for Andrew Day. And that was mainly because the United States versus Billy Holiday hadn't screened enough for those members yet. So if you're not on this list, uh, chances of getting a nomination are pretty low. That also provides some mixed messages for folks like Ben Affleck, who were nominated um, for SAG Awards today, but did not make the long list. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a lot of the frontrunners. It's, it's, it's pretty much what you'd expect. There are some notable underperformances of movies like Nightmare Alley, which really didn't show up anywhere um except for a few technical categories and these are like again out of 20 films and you would think that that movie would be in the top five for some of those technical categories so um that was one that really stood out to me uh just in line with what we've seen in terms of how the film's been performing otherwise for the last few weeks um and also spencer i saw these just before the sag nominations came out and and spencer is technically a british film and and they tend to 
you know, understandably lean a little bit more in those directions and it didn't make uh, the top 15 for best film. Pablo Lorraine did not make the director list of 20. Um, and those are little signs that the movie is just not resonating. So even though Kristen Stewart made that list of 15 for lead actress, um, that coupled with her missing SAG is, is why I'm genuinely concerned that she will not be nominated for an Oscar because it, it the movie is clearly not hitting in a pretty significant way. And, and I think that now that enough, you know, other contenders and lead actress have emerged, uh, it's tricky. Um, and then, you know, some of the other SAG nominations that we saw, like Bradley Cooper did double up here. So some narratives confirmed, some challenged, but it's always good to look at because the list does give you a really good indication of of who the Oscar contenders are coming down to. Yeah. Um, also on the actress topic, I noticed that Penelope Cruz didn't make the actress yes. list at BAFTA, which is a real bummer. She did not have a good day. And Parallel Mothers did make screenplay and international film. So the fact that it did not uh, land Penelope Cruz in that top 15 for actress is a pretty bad sign uh, for yeah. her Oscar chances, unfortunately. Ooh. If people don't know uh, who are listening, um, so basically this now these long lists will get um, winnowed down to nominees by like a, a specially appointed jury, basically, um, which was sort of put in place. Was it last year was the first time they did it um, to kind of help diversify the nominations and, and think a little bit more critically. So they have a lot of critics on board, which leads me to think that like certain critically beloved, if maybe little seen films could get in and get a nomination. So I'm, my question to all of you is, should it get a nomination? Which venerable British actor do you want to hear, say, bad luck banging or loony porn? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Can we get uh, David Attenborough to do it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want, exactly. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I would love someone like Juliet Stevenson. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> good. <laughs> Just so um, many choices. That that is a great point, though, because and I think they tweaked it a little bit again this year, where these long lists are determined by the whole membership for the most part. So you know they, they do reflect broadly how Academy voters are thinking because there's there's a lot of overlap. But the top two of these long lists automatically go on to nominations now in most of these categories. So the jury... But we can't tell what the top two is from and we can't. Lists, right? So yeah, let's say Katrina Balfe is in the top two for Belfast. And let's say the jury was not a fan of Belfast. That would not matter. She would still be nominated. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, however, uh, to Richard's point, the, the majority of the nominees will be determined from these lists by uh, a much smaller jury than the overall BAFTA membership or the overall acting chapter of BAFTA. So that always leads to <laughs> a, a kind of bizarre, fascinating assortment of nominations. I think it last year it made for one of the more intriguing lists and a lot of contenders that weren't really in the conversation otherwise got a chance to have a, a nice awards moment. So that yeah, that, that's always something... That's something that I like about this new system, even though it's less less good for prognostication, let's say. Yeah. I miss looking at the director list and imagining like the critic voted lineup where it's drive my car, first cow, petite maman, the souvenir part two, tatan. Like that's the <laughs> the, the like wild ass critic beloved uh, director lineup. So you never know. I love seeing First Cow getting any award recognition, even, you know, a year and a half after it happened yeah, So that's for that's for this year. That's interesting. Yeah, I have. I have. No, I mean, who knows? The pandemic made so many releases very strange. I'm, I'm now looking at the directing lineup for last year, and it was Chloe Zhao, Thomas Vinterberg, and then I'm going to butcher the name, unfortunately, Jasmila Jabonik for Quo Vadis Aida, which See? was... Mm-hmm. See? Sarah Gavron for Rocks. Shannon Murphy for Baby Teeth and mm-hmm. uh, Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. So you had three Oscar nominees and three far from Oscar nominations <laughs> nominees. Adding variety into award season is something I think we can all get behind, especially when Definitely. it's uh, people that we like. So the BAFTA nominations are out on February 3rd, which I believe is a week before uh, Oscar nominations, just about a week. So um, until then, we have a pretty quiet awards period ahead of us, which is um, a bummer, as we talked about with all these cancellations. But we'll have a lot to look forward to once February starts. And speaking of things to look forward to, uh, we don't have much information, but we do know that there will be an Oscar host this year, um, as they confirmed. I think it was it TCA. It was some very strange 
platform for confirming that there will TCA, be an Oscar I believe. host. Um, I am firmly pro Oscar host. I tweeted my pick, which would be John Waters, um, which I don't know if that would ever actually happen. <laughs> um, but but uh, do we generally agree that after last year's uh, kind of making the best with what they had circumstances that having a, um, a proper host this year is a good move? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should do as traditional an Oscar ceremony as possible. Absolutely. You know? yeah. um, just not, not make people feel like everything's different now. Everything's changed. The world can never return to what it once was. Just give them, give us the same. I want it to be four and a half hours long. I want every single <laughs> montage that man has ever dreamt up. Like, I just, I want everything. How I want much Debbie interpretive Allen dancing? To, yes, and Debbie yeah, Allen. I want all of it. Uh, my friend Ben Lee, who is a culture editor at The Guardian, um, pointed me out to me that recently in I think it was either one or two interviews. Tom Holland said he would love to host the Oscars. Yes, and then apparently did. the Academy reached out to him and there yeah. had been talks. So maybe it's Tom Holland because he can sing, he can dance, he's charming, he's in the biggest movie like ever practically uh, at the moment. So that's, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't like to see that. I would prefer a sort of traditional, you know, you know Jackman style. Like, comedian. Yeah, like I want a comedian, but, um, but that, that, could, that would be a choice. They would get younger viewers in maybe. Somebody tweeted that they wanted Tom Holland and Zendaya to do it together. And now I cannot get that idea out of my head. I just think it would be wonderful. <laughs> and I don't know who I have to pay to make that happen. But <laughs> Yeah, I um, saw someone compare that idea to like James Franco and Anne Hathaway, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the most recent like youth pandering example. But like they their energies were so mismatched. And Tom Holland and Zendaya, like we know that their energies are well <laughs> yes, matched. Yep. We've seen it. Um, I also think that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. And I think... More eyeballs for the Oscars, the better, the more necessary. And I think that mm-hmm. would achieve that. So I think it's yeah. a good idea if they can make it happen. Uh, my other idea, which does not appeal to the youth at all, but uh, get Steve Martin and Martin Short to um, to do it together. Or, or get Selena Gomez with yes, them. We have the full Selena Only Gomez, Murders crew. Yeah. I'm all for that. Steve Martin, I always loved as an Oscar host. Um, and I think he would be great at it. And it's weird that Martin Short has never done it because he would be I great. know. Mm-hmm. I feel like he must have at least done some kind of like sketch or like shown yeah. up as a presenter in a weird costume or that that feels <laughs> inevitable. Oscar nerds listening, please um, remind us when Martin Short has shown up at the Oscars before. So before we end uh, this portion of the show and get to the interview, uh, we did want to pause a minute to talk about Sidney Poitier, who died last week at the age of 94. Uh, He is a huge figure in Oscar history as the first black actor to win the Best Actor Oscar. Um, And as written about in a piece in the Awards Insider issue, out now with Katrina Balfe on the cover, uh, the story written by Rebecca Ford. Um, But Chris Murphy wrote about the moment 20 years ago when Halle Berry and Denzel Washington both won their competitive Oscars and Sidney Poitier had won his honorary award and um, Denzel Washington in his speech said something to the effect of like Sydney, I'll always be following in your footsteps. Um, and I had just realized, you know, looking, reading his obits and thinking about his legacy that I had never seen Lilies of the Field, the movie that he won Best Actor for. It came out in 1963. Um, it's not the most famous of his movies. I don't think it's the one that people turn to first. They talk about To Start With Love and In the Heat of the Night. Um, and it's on YouTube. So I watched it and um, I was really glad that I did. And um, David and Rebecca, was this your first encounter with it? Did you have another Sydney? Poitier movie you turned to when you learned about his death? This was my first time seeing it. Thank you for the assignment, Katie. I felt <laughs> same, like same. <laughs> I felt like it was such a wonderful sort of palate cleanser because I've been watching a lot of kind of dark, hard TV right now, um, sort of preparing for Emmy season. And, and it's just such a wonderful film and such a captivating, charming performance by him. And I just really enjoyed it. So um, I'm really glad I saw it. And I thought this was a beautiful way to kind of remember him. Yeah, I was um, nervous about it because, you know, the I think a lot of his legacy is tied up in how he was this groundbreaker. He was the one black actor and a lot of his roles he's famous for, including in the heat of the night and guess who's coming to dinner is being like the black, the nice, smart black person who teaches white people the error of their ways and how to respect people. And Lilies of the Field has little elements of that, but it's it's way more interesting than that because he's with these uh, Austrian nuns who have come across from East Berlin and they're trying to like scrap out this existence. And they do kind of like force him to stay with them, which was a uh, an element as the movie started. I was like, I couldn't really get comfortable with. But then the relationship that emerges from that, uh, not just with them, but also the people in this kind of border town in Arizona, um, there's just so much more dynamic to it. I, I, I underestimated it at first and then was really glad I stuck with it. Yeah, me too. Um, I did not. I didn't know anything about the movie really. I had just read Wesley Morris's um, amazing essay 
um, remembering him. And the thesis of it was essentially he was the movie star we needed him to be and that he he pulled off this kind of impossible balance of being what you were saying, Katie, the the one in so many movies and, and representing so much, but also being uh, a pretty dynamic, interesting actor in his own right and finding nuance uh, in those roles. Um, and I'd seen him, of course, in his other, I would say it's safe to say, more famous movies, um, but never in this one. And I, I really was taken with him in this. And um, the, like you said, the dynamics uh, are really interesting and it's, it's a subtler movie than I thought it would be. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it just, it, w- it was really interesting to see it right after I'd read the essay because it, it showed me a whole new side of him uh, that I didn't know about, uh, kind of. I felt kind of shameful about it because <laughs> I do care about Oscar's history and I, I care about his milestone, but I, I, um, I didn't see this whole other side to him as, as an artist and as, as, as a, as a groundbreaker. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, revisiting in the heat of the night as well, which also starts with him like trying to leave a town and other people convincing him to stick around against his will, which <laughs> is a weird uh, uh, synchronicity. And obviously his performance is really powerful and really famous. And, you know, the scene where he uh, slaps the owner of the, the cotton farm. Um, but in Lilies of the Field is lighter and he's funny in it and he gets these kind of like goofy scenes of teaching these nuns yeah. English and he's like mm-hmm. it is so physical and he's smiling a lot. And then he like befriends some of the you know other people who are helping him build the chapel. And like you were saying, David, it's just this whole other element. And, you, you know, you knew how talented he was and that he had this ability. But I didn't realize how good of a showcase Lilies of the Field was for, for all of those aspects of his um, of his personality. Yeah. So Lilies of the Field, it's on YouTube to watch for free. I don't know what the right situation is, but it was a very good transfer of this uh, black and white movie from 1963. And it's 90 minutes long. So if, like Rebecca, you're watching, a, you know, eight hours of dark, violent television, um, which I have, too. I was watching Yellow Jackets and then paused it to watch Lilies of the Field. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's worth your time in, in every sense of the word. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. So we'll end the show uh, with my conversation with Jamie Dornan, who is part of the SAG-nominated ensemble of Belfast. Um, he plays Pa, the uh, the father figure in this movie, very heavily based on Kenneth Branagh's childhood. Um, and he's gotten all kinds of attention for this role and plays a really essential uh, role in the ensemble and I think breaks out of a lot of what people uh, thought of him for having gotten famous in Fifty Shades of Grey. He's having a really good year for, for showing new sides of himself. So let's hear that conversation with Jamie Dornan. I mean, I was going to ask you, because I think a lot of people were planning to be in L.A. for these couple of weeks with all these events going on, and now none of them are happening. So what's that been like for you? I mean, you're still in L.A., so clearly you're in town. But what, what was that shift like for you? It's strange, isn't it? Because you, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, luckily for us, it's not the only reason. Like, we, well, it, it's the reason we're here this early. I was meant to come out actually about a week earlier, mm-hmm. and then my family followed out a few days later um, because my wife was, reco- my wife's a film composer and she was recording a score right up until Friday there so they were going to join me after but um all ended up coming later because things kept getting cancelled and getting <laughs> postponed but you know um it's strange to fly all this way and just be doing a lot of zooms and uh, again virtual press yeah, yeah. Uh, I could be doing this at home but you know my wife is her next job um is here in LA in February anyway so we needed to get out here anyway for her job so um you know, I think it'll all, it'll all make sense. You know, I, th- I do think um, in a few weeks we'll be in rooms together, hopefully again, and it'll be a bit more... Fingers crossed. Yeah, a bit more normal. And, you know, I think we are... Well, I think in the States you're about three or four weeks behind where we are in the UK with mm-hmm, all the mm-hmm. You know, we reached our peak and we're out the other side and hospitals are just about, you know, dealing with it. And now everything's easing again. So I'm hoping that the same thing will be happening here in a few weeks. So, uh, yeah. Well, and for this film in particular, like the power of the people in the room and people coming up to you. And I think you and Kenneth Branagh have had stories about, you know, everyone being feeling like it's their own personal story. Like you get a dose of that in-person interaction and then going back to trying to connect with people over the movie on Zoom. It's uh, now that you know what you're missing, it's so hard to go back. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of 
it's very hard to have any sort of real human connection with someone uh through a computer it's 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 difficult and and also like you if, if if someone's got a lot of nice things to say about your work it's so much nicer when you can there's a you know palpable feeling and energy coming off them that you can <laughs> digest in person. yeah totally and and it works both ways you know everyone it's just a better situation for for everyone as long as we're safe and you know so we'll we'll we'll, we'll get there i think everyone's craving it but you know it's right to be taking every safety measure we can until we're through this thing yeah um so i was going back and looking at some of the in-person press you did do before we all got stuck back behind our computers um and you had talked about how when you were on set you could talk to kenneth Branagh and kind of ask him like what would your father have done what was this moment like and it, it didn't feel like he was kind of prescribing to you what the character was but it felt like guidance and that feels so tricky to me that's such a hard balance for him not to just be you know especially as an actor like giving you line reading so how, how did he strike that balance how did it work out that you felt empowered with that information and not kind of trapped because it was very much him feeling like he was telling me whatever information I was seeking from him to be like, use that how you will, absorb that in whatever way you need it to work for you. Um, but as long as it's you as Jamie instinctually doing what you wanted to do anyway, then I'm happy because he was just right from the beginning of the the sort of journey of Belfast instilling this idea in in me and, and all of us really that he wanted us to bring our own vibe to it and mm-hmm. uh, and we should not be trying to be uh some carbon copy of an idea of who his parents were and you know the reality was of course we're playing real people but it is a version of them and it's not like where you're playing a real person who's very famous and you can yeah. mimic them and copy their physicality and their movements and their tone of voice. That That's not what we're dealing with, you know. So it was easier just to um, find a freedom to, to, to bring what we essentially thought was right for, for these characters. And, and, yeah, I think guidance is the right way of saying, like, you know, if we if Ken felt that it was uh, becoming something that wasn't sort of cohesive with his idea of who his parents were, uh, then he would bring us back. But he would never. I, I, I don't. I don't think he ever did that. You mm-hmm. know, it was all. It was very supportive, is what I'd say. It was just so supportive in what our choices were and our ideas were. Was there a particular moment in the film or a scene where you found it especially helpful to get that feedback from him about what reality was about or what it was like to be in that specific world? Yeah, probably when we, Katrina and I, have the big fight. Um, the dish-throwing fight? Yeah, the dish-throwing fight, yeah. Because, yeah, that, that's tricky. You know, this is, this is you know, largely based on real events in, in Ken's life and about 90% of it happened. And that is one of the ones that happened. So you're talking about... A difficult situation for someone to talk about a moment that happened 50 years ago that was probably really distressing to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, you also want to get an understanding of how um, heightened it got, how violent it got, what the threat level was, um, how how much that affected um, him seeing it as a nine-year-old boy. Um and uh, what the for the scenes after, and how where what sort of climax it got to to know then what the fallout was and what the response was after and how they were with each other after for those scenes was so important, you know. So trying to gauge all that stuff again, like a lot of stuff in the movie, it was one shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not coming in for uh, two shots or close ups or anything. It was all like all playing in one. Um, so there's an excitement that comes with that of going, right, both, here we go. Let's get all this in here. Let's <laughs> <laughs> really have a real spring at this one. And, yeah. uh, and luckily, Katrina and I were just always on the same page about what we felt was right. And luckily, even more luckily, on the same page as, as, as Ken. Yeah. 
I'm curious how the three of you discuss the everlasting love scene, the kind of the big, you know, tentpole scene in the movie in some way, because it's heightened and it doesn't feel real, but it's not especially a fantasy sequence. And I think, you know, it cuts to Jude Hill, so you know it's through his eyes. But how real it is, is has been unclear to me the whole time. And I'm curious if you guys had decided for yourselves how realistic it was and if that was important in playing it. Yeah, well, you see, I think it's, it's you know, there's a lot happening there, right? There's a lot on the physicality of the day and the, the practicality of that day. Um, having all those different players in the room, you know, a lot of people who are one or two day players in, in the senior pivotal roles in the movie all being there. You know, it was everyone except Kieran for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, but having us all in that room was an amazing feeling. Um, but we had a lot of work to do. There's, there's apart from the sort of the, the, the actual, at that time, hadn't recorded my vocal. Mm. So I'm lip syncing, which is trickier than people think it is probably. Um, the dance moves, which are very tricky if you have two left feet like me. <laughs> and so there, all the technical things you're having to think about, you know, which whether you want to or not, no matter how much work you've done, they are occupying space in your head yeah no you are because you got to hit your mark you have to be where the camera needs you to be exactly and you're aware that you want it to look a certain way and for it to look a certain way you have to plant that foot to spin her around like you know so you're thinking about it but really at the core of all that is the emotional stuff that's going on and the storytelling is massively crucial the release of what's just gone on um, and just burying your father and the release of that of um, then trying to sort of celebrate his life in that moment, but also where where Ma and Pa are in their relationship at the time is massive. You know that mm-hmm. it's really fractured. They're they're sort of on the brink there. You know, so you're, there's so much conveyance of that through the looks between Katrina and I, and basically trying to say like we are really up against it here and we are being tested. But guess what? I love you and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be fine. We're going to get through this. Um, so they're big things to play and big emotions to play and portray. Um, so, yeah, it was a big balancing act, act of trying to get the combination of all that together. But I think it's I think it worked. And um, I love the look of that scene. It's, I know I'm in a lot of the shots, so that sounds like a fairly narcissistic thing to say. But like, I think that particularly the lighting of that scene, the way it was set up, as you say, it has this sort of heightened otherworldly quality to it. And um, Harris Ambaluk has shot it beautifully, and, and the way it was all set up was was just made us look probably better than we were. Yeah, I mean, you feel like this wake you know, with these people who don't have a ton of money might not have like a three-piece horn section playing on stage. Um, But it sounds like what you're saying is like, it doesn't really matter how like real it is because the emotion is what comes across so clearly and that's real. And that that, that was what mattered to you guys. I'm saying that a lot of Irish people are musical. uh, So (laughs) So there might be a three-piece horn section. I think think they all lived on this, you know, pretty much on the same street. So it would be a a case of here, go and grab, go and grab a puppet and join us. Um, Um... but yeah, it's uh, what was the other part of that? Sorry. Oh, just just that the emotions were what mattered as being real more than yeah, the um, absolutely. And the if you're not getting that, if you're not getting that across, you're screwed. You know, yeah. and that that no matter how fun the release is in that moment, and uh, how great a song that is, or how how good people think it'll um, looks or whatever, if if we haven't portrayed the uh, emotive element of that scene, then it it, it won't work. Yeah. I was really struck rewatching it about how much the movies are threaded into this film itself. Like there's the family goes to see the movies, but then the whole confrontation has the the theme song from High Noon playing in the background. And I wonder, A, if you watched Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or High Noon or any of the others, or if you and um, Kenneth Branagh talked about John Wayne at all as a figure for either that confrontation scene or throughout of, as how this boy is imagining his dad as this John Wayne worthy figure. Was that part of the conversation? Yeah, we did talk about that a bit. And again, it comes back to that sort of idealistic way of seeing, um, you know, his his parents, like almost seeing them as like these matinee idols that, um, that were like heroic almost to him. You know, he's, he had them on such a pedestal and and that's kind of the way he he saw um, John Wayne and saw, you know, him and his brother saw these actors in movies and he, he sort of, in a way, it's like, well, my parents like that. It's like that idea that like when you're a kid, like I remember thinking my dad 
was like the strongest man in the world when I was mm-hmm. a kid. It certainly wasn't, you know, but um, just that idea you have of your parents, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to have a good relationship with your parents and see them that way and you have the, you give them this sort of heightened sense, you know, of superpower almost. And um, I think that is something that um, Ken, when he was a kid, got from the movies and applied to his own, his own people in his life, including his parents. So um, I watched, uh, you know, I, I, I would... I've watched Chitty Chitty Bang Bang a lot. You know, I really have in my life. Um, it was a big player in in, in our youth uh, when I was a kid, and and I've actually shown it to our two eldest kids. Um, Did it uh, work? Does it hold up? Yeah, you know, it does. It does. It's weird. Chitty Chitty. Bang <laughs> it is Bang. a weird movie. Yeah, it is. It's it's kind of really out there, and especially you know the old sort of mad uncle or is he an uncle or whatever who did the inventor or whatever and who has that strange like toilet thing I mean they go to that world and the child catcher and it, it's 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 really out there you know yeah Judy Dench had never seen it she'd never seen that's fast I guess she was not a kid when it came out and was like the wrong generation for it yeah it's a good point she wouldn't have been but you know she had kids yeah it's just like it's one of those massive films that it's just so embedded you'd think in so many people's lives but she said that she's actually uh she'd hardly seen any films she and because she went to see when she was a kid she went to see bambi and it's horrific what happens you know And she saw Dumbo, where she's taken away from her mother. And I can I, I think, was it like Watership Down or something? There's one other one that was just like really harrowing <laughs> <laughs> movies. Like put her off films. So like, That's uh, amazing. Her on it. Like, she hasn't seen any films. It's crazy. Wow. But, um, it's worked out okay for her, I guess. She's done all right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, so did you watch High Noon too? Uh, I didn't watch High Noon. I actually didn't realize High Noon was going to be used until because we, we changed. We had that. There, there was also other movies in there. At one point, The Great Escape was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, God, what else was there? There's a couple of other ones in there. We filmed sort of reactions to uh, all of them. Yeah. Um, and I'd seen that and I'd watch that again when I knew that was going to be in. But High Noon, I haven't seen. And I actually still haven't seen High Noon. Very good. Um, which is, which is uh, crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm to watch it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm interested because you're talking about the Matt Nyadal thing that he's imagining his parents. So, like, did you have John Wayne, Robert Mitchum? Like, was there a particular actor who you thought of as influencing this kid version of who Pa was? Well, not not specifically. No, I didn't. Um, we talked a lot about. Uh, I had this idea of um, remembering myself as a young child and who I looked up to and who I would have thought was really sort of otherworldly and beyond and like something that was sort of unattainable and um for me growing up it was people that were doing who were like uh, anyone who's from belfast or from the north of ireland who was like doing well on like in movies and stuff was just so otherworldly to me like the idea that you came from that place and could be in movies was crazy to me kind of still is to be honest (laughs) um so um, I would sort of apply, you know, Liam Neeson or something, you know, like this the idea of like someone who's from, that's from where you're from, but has achieved great things. And mm-hmm. I remember like, you know, um, you know, I was probably more in my teens when, uh, early teens when, when, when Liam had really become a big star. He's obviously a huge star in a, almost a different realm now with, with what he's done in the last 15 years with his work. But um you know, never forgetting what that sense of that felt like and um, what you sort of pinned to that and then making that applicable to to how Buddy saw these actors and saw his own his, his own dad, but also how I saw my own dad and continued to see my own dad until my dad died uh, last year. You know, it's, um, I know what that is. I know what that uh, sort of hero-worshipping thing is of, of your own father. Yeah. Um, so being able to apply that was 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 something that was pretty cool. Have you wrapped your head around the idea of your kids thinking that of you? I find that I, I have kids as well, and I totally understand worshiping your parents, and I cannot think of myself in that worshipped role. 
And I don't know if it's if this has helped you kind of wrap your head around that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think they're there yet. Um, <laughs> with the worship aspect of it, I don't maybe think they ever will be. <laughs> I still just think, I mean, our five-year-old said to me, um, when I, I, someone asked her what she wanted to be when she grows up, and she said, when I grow up, I want to be silly like daddy. <laughs> and I was like, that's a pretty great compliment, and I got to love it. Um, but um, I think, you know, they're getting a pretty strong sense. I mean, you know, my wife and I both work in the same industry, and um, they see it from both sides. They get to see what mommy does, which is a very cool part of it, and to, to score films, and, and she's she did the score for film I'm in. So they had a great time going up to see how mommy was getting on, trying to enhance daddy's performance. <laughs> <laughs> With a bit of a piano here and there or whatever it was. But yeah, uh, it, it's been nice the last couple of years. I've done a couple of things where I think they, they've been able to watch um, mm-hmm. and they'd be able to see a bit of Belfast. I think maybe, you know, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I think they're, they, yeah, it's, I think it'll be a while before they're really kind of, thinking it's it's cool and maybe they never will I don't know yeah do you feel strongly about what they know about what fame and and attention means like do you feel like that's something you have to really navigate for them in terms of what you do yeah a bit you know they, they're often like you know we've made a choice in their very early formative years to live out in the middle of nowhere we live in the countryside there's no paparazzi we're not going to any parties or fancy dinners where we're getting our photograph taken we, we're, yeah. we're pretty much out of the limelight for the most part and we like it that way um probably harder here when we're in la and uh but uh you know they'll have like you know i was with our five-year-old yesterday and uh a girl came up and like wanted a chat and a photograph and after my daughter turned around and was like do you know her <laughs> <laughs> totally like, logical question it makes perfect like, sense i don't know her and she said why does she want to talk to you and i said well i don't know like some people you know the daddy's an actor and i'm in movies and on tv sometimes and some people you know are like the stuff i do and they, they see me and recognize me and want to chat you know and it's nothing more than that and, and my daughter was like oh that's nice so they're basically saying that they like <laughs> Yeah, like, maybe I guess it is kind of like that. No, I, and um, so there's an innocence to it all, I guess, at this at this stage. And you know, um, they, uh, I you know, I'm very good about, you know, like yesterday she wanted a photograph. I was like, can you just make sure that my kids, yeah, are in yeah. It? and I'll check it after to make sure that there's not like an ear of my five year old or anything weird. So, um, yeah, I think it's an ever-evolving thing that as they get older and their understanding grows of, of, of different scenarios and situations, we'll have to sort of play it by ear. But, you know, um, we haven't had anything that's been too dramatic or anything yet or anything that we've really had to sort of explain to them yet. Yeah. Yeah. And as your career grows, too, you know, and social media changes, like it's it's such a moving target that you get to figure out what a, what a joy of parenting on top of everything else you have to figure out. Well. Um, I think it's fascinating. So um, Katrina was on the cover of our awards issue and she talked to my colleague Rebecca Ford about her start in modeling. And I think it's interesting the way you guys both talk about it as having grateful for the experience, but getting to a point where you're like, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to stand in front of a camera. Um, But then you both became actors, which is standing in front of a camera. It's very different. But I'm just really interested in why that transition made sense to you, that you were tired of that version of being visible but chose another way to be visible, but with maybe more expression. Like, why did that feel like the right transition? Uh, one of them I never planned on doing and didn't want to do. And the other one I always probably, if I'm going to be honest, harbored some ambition to do. I'll let you guess which was which. <laughs> um, so there is something of uh, maybe a dissatisfaction with, with, with modeling, even though it was incredibly kind to me. But I was always a bit like, it's not the end game for me and I don't want it to be in it with all the respect in the world. Um, I didn't want to be doing it in my 30s and my 40s. Well, it's so hard to. I mean, it's easier for men, but it's hard not to. easy. Remember, you know what? I actually remember one time I was at the same agency the whole time. And I remember an agent said to me really early on when I was like, I'd probably been doing it a few years. I was probably 22, 23 or something. And... Uh, my agent saying you, you're you, you've got a, a face that's that's you know it, it'll probably be 
lasts you a long time. Like the shape of your face or whatever means that like you, um, cause you get a lot of models who, uh, they're the right look for that moment or whatever. Cause uh-huh, uh-huh. it's sort of very angular thing or like really like insect thin, whatever it is, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. good in that moment. But if you were sort of considered more classically what they want or whatever, then you'd have more longevity. And someone, this sort of agent was explaining to me that like the way my face was, uh, you know, I could get to do it for a long time, you know, into my like, you know, up to 50 and beyond. And I remember going like, that is awful. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the last thing in the world that I want to be doing when I'm uh, like it know. crystallizes the feeling in that one moment totally, that you know. totally totally and I remember saying I said this recently during an interview I remember thinking like once I started acting more like I remember going like I can't wait to be an actor so it doesn't matter what I look like <laughs> you know, when, when did the news break to you that it might it might yeah, still like matter it, but I guess it sort of doesn't matter as much like there's emphasis as a model to like just always be I don't know you, you know in, in, for, in, well let's put it this way in acting you're usually what is being drawn out are people's flaws or are human flaws um, mm. um, what are, are broken elements Whereas in modeling, it's all about like looking your 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 best, and if, yeah. if you're worried about looking good as an actor, you're you're screwed. Like that's not what this game's about, you know. Yeah. Did you and Katrina ever cross paths? You guys were working around the same time. No, and this is that crazy. I mean, it is crazy. people from, from the same, you know, from the northern part of a tiny island, yeah. um, who were both pretty much at the same time. Mm-hmm. Doing doing stuff at I was in and out of New York so much and, and 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 Katrina for the most part was in New York. I remember hearing years ago, five, seven, eighteen years ago or something, that there's this model from Monaghan, <laughs> <laughs> and you should meet her. You guys would get on great. And I was like, there's no way there's a model from Monaghan. <laughs> it might have been easier. You might have been happier in the career if you'd met each other and been able to yeah, uh, <laughs> to connect true. there. Yeah, I know. But yeah, amazing. And then when we did finally meet, we met at TIFF a few years ago, briefly, through with both different movies there or whatever. And um, I thought she was great. And then obviously um, got, you know, I then obviously know her, you know, yeah. incredibly well now and, and love her. And we then subsequently worked out we knew so many of the same people. Oh, which, yeah. Yeah. You do the game where, yeah, you know, if you're from somewhere crazy. that small. We yeah. spend the whole time like, how did we never meet? Like, what? It's about- <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad the way it worked out. Yeah, it was, it was meant to happen the way that it did, right? That does it for this week's show. You can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find so many great stories from our Awards Insider issue, which is out now for awards voters and uh, all going up online, including uh, Rebecca's story and Katrina Balf, David's story about the documentaries that would like a Best Picture nomination, and looking back at Oscar's dismal track record of nominating gay actors. There's so much to choose from. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and on our own, I am at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield, ninety-seven. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And Richard had to leave, but he is at Rylaws. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7118. I loved reading all your SAG reactions. Please keep all of it coming. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for what we hope to be saying when there is a proper red carpet at this year's Oscars goes to uh, Richard Lawson and his sister. Well, that's an outfit. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.